this cube can capture about 40 to 50 tons a year. So if you compare it to trees, it's as efficient as 2,000 trees per year. Hello, I'm Sue Nelson and thanks for joining me on Create the Future, a podcast brought to you by the Queen Elizabeth Prize for Engineering. Climate change is recognised as a serious threat to our environment, food security and the global economy. And engineers around the world are playing a role in trying to mitigate the increase of greenhouse gases. My guest is the Head of Research and Development for Climeworks, a company based in Zurich in Switzerland that built and operated the world's first commercial direct air capture plant of carbon dioxide. Natalie Casas is a chemical and bioengineer. She studied at the Science and Technology University, ETH Zurich, and worked at the industrial company Sulzer before joining Climeworks in 2017. It's a company founded by engineers to reduce the effects of climate change, and considering we're all experiencing a current threat in the form of a pandemic, I began by asking Natalie how seriously we need to take climate change right now. From my point of view, uh, climate change is there. So even if we have another big issue to resolve for the moment, climate change will not vanish. So it needs to be taken very seriously. And also we don't have much time to lose. So we know already since decades that climate change is happening and we didn't really act on it. And now time is getting short and we need to do something. Do you see climate change as a specific challenge for engineers, for them to play a role in helping to determine the Earth's future? I think engineers can contribute quite a lot to the solution of climate change. Everybody needs to be aware of and everybody needs to work against it or do his share. But I think the engineers have the opportunity to deliver technology in order to mitigate it. From this perspective, I think being an engineer, um, we are in a good position to help also other people to make something against it. So let's go to this direct air capture plant that that Climeworks has built and operates. How do these actually work? There are different technologies around, but the one we have, it's kind of a filter box where we suck the air through and the CO2 sticks into the material in the box and can then be released by heating the box and collected in a concentrated form. So it's kind of a two-step process. First step, we get air into the box, we collect the CO2, and then in a second step, we heat it up, CO2 is released and can then be collected. And how much carbon dioxide does kind of a typical sort of plant remove each year from the air? So we we have a, a very modular system. I don't know if you have seen the picture of our plant. So one box is, let's say, about... 1.5 meter cube and uh, this cube can capture about 40 to 50 tons a year. That's incredible. Yeah it's quite a lot so if you compare it to trees it's as efficient as 2,000 trees per year. 
that's a bit worrying to me though that's that's signals warning bells to me is that does this mean we'll have more boxes instead of forests <laughs> uh, no definitely not so I, I think we need to take care about our forest and we also need to plant trees uh, i'm absolutely not against trees and natural resources but uh, what I wanted to say is that uh, our technology has also an edge. So we need less space and less water in order to capture a really big amount. I understand. <laughs> and it's not just about reducing emissions, though, is it? You actually store the carbon dioxide and then sell it on. Yes. So there, there are two ways you can make use of this uh, captured carbon dioxide. So one thing is to store it underground this means it is separated from the atmosphere and actually removed so if we, we want to reduce the concentration in the air this is what we have to do the other thing is the circular economy which gets more and more attention in the last years what does this mean so a, a carbon which is in the air so a co2 is captured and then transformed to a material using electricity, for example, a fuel. So you have a CO2, you capture it, you transform it into a fuel, and then you burn the fuel and the CO2 is released again. So by doing this, the CO2 concentration in the air is not reduced, but you are not adding any CO2 to the air. Hence the sort of circular side of it, it's just going round and round in, in, in circles. And you can also sell pure carbon dioxide to food and drink industry, I'd imagine. Exactly. So this is also something uh, we are doing now. So we sell uh, CO2 to a mineral water supplier being uh, Walzer. This uh, belongs to Coca-Cola in order to create the bubbles in the drink. Yes, I must admit, I'm, I'm a bit addicted to bubbles in sparkling water. And I, I'm never 100% sure whether I'm doing the right thing for the environment or not by having one of those CO2 canisters. But if it was to come from a sort of circular economy type <laughs> method, then that would basically ease my conscience, wouldn't it? Yes, then you don't need to worry about the CO2 in your uh, sparkling water. Okay. Now, your job as head of research and development, R&D, what does a, a typical day involve for you? Des describe what you do. I'm a chemical engineer by background. So what I do the whole day is basically I meet to the people in my team I discuss uh, their, their progress. I discuss the strategy. Where do we want to focus on in the next weeks? How can we improve our technology? And I'm more, I would say, in a strategic role. However, quite close to the technology. Of course, I'm head of R&D, so I need to, and I really like to. But I'm not doing that engineering by myself. So you're using your background in engineering to spot the potential in other engineering projects effectively. Exactly. So one thing is to spot potential and the other thing is to set the strategy and the direction for uh, my people. And can you tell if someone's project idea is likely to fail or succeed sort of immediately or do they always take work? This is difficult to say. So I think if, if there, there are trained people, 
the ideas normally are already well thought through, so they're not coming up with very crazy ideas, which you can immediately tell that this would not work. So I think normally, uh, if an, a new idea is on the table, we, we set us, for example, two weeks to get a bit deeper into it and to analyze the risk and the upside or, or the potential of the idea. And then we decide if we put more time and money on one or the other idea. And are all the ideas that you're looking at all related to climate change? Yes, so, so the ideas I, I'm looking at during my uh, working day or in my job are all related to climate change and even more precisely to DAC, so to our direct air capture technology. And do you see this? How, you know, what sort of future do you see for this in terms of a time scale for more countries to be using this technology? I think it will be deployed and it will be deployed rather quickly since so I'm also talking to customers and I'm giving speeches at conferences and I realized that in the last year so let's say the last two to three years there is a really big momentum on the topic so more and more companies and also countries realize that there is a big need for action now and they want to do something. And since direct air capture is one of the few technologies which can actually take out CO2 of the air and reduce the CO2 concentration, we have quite some attention and also a lot of support. That's great. Now, let's go to your career. Um, you studied chemical engineering at ETH Zurich. And, and that's, I was reading about it and, and it was saying, you know, it was established in, in 1855. Um, is this part of Switzerland's engineering establishment, so to speak, in terms of academia? Uh, yes. So I think there in Switzerland, there are two federal schools on a university level where you can study engineering. And this is the ETH where I studied and the EPFL in Lausanne. So these are, in terms of, let's say, a ranking, the two top universities in Switzerland when it comes to engineering. And how does Switzerland treat its, its engineers? One of the things about this podcast I found quite interesting is engineers from different countries, they often have different viewpoints. And so, say, in India, engineering was always considered like a sort of admirable, this is the profession you want your children to go into. How was it in Switzerland? I would say it's also uh, one of these professions you would like your children to work on or, or go to, since it's a very uh, solid and profound education. And they are uh, not enough engineers here in Switzerland. So uh, getting a job is not that difficult since there is a lack of engineer. There are many engineers coming from outside, so from Germany or France or Italy, Spain to support our industry. And there is quite some tradition in engineering in Switzerland as well. Yes, yes, absolutely. I, I, my mind immediately went to clocks, which is such a cliche, which is, but I couldn't help it. I'm sure there's far more <laughs> to, to it than that. I just thought, oh, precision watches. Um, why chemical engineering though? What led you to make that choice at school to study further? 
I think I was quite open. So I was always interested in engineering, in chemistry, in biology, in material science. So uh, my father is an engineer, so a mechanical engineer, and my mom is a microbiologist. And I remember when I was a kid, my mom had to go to work sometimes on the weekends. And when my father was traveling, I, I went with her. And then uh, she allowed me to do some uh, microscopic experiments or, or to, to mix some things in the lab. And this I really liked. So uh, from early on, I was very fascinating. On the one hand, by engineering, by math, and on the other hand, also by the work you can do in the lab and by really little things. So I, I think it was kind of a compromise of my uh, background. That's, that's, <laughs> that's yeah. really lucky, actually, isn't it? It's effectively having your parents as mentors and also in a way doing it's it's like an informal internship, too, because like you say, you're getting to see engineering from the inside from a very young age. Yes, so uh, I really enjoyed it. And so also my father, he, he loved engineering, so he was very passionate and he was discussing things with me, so uh, explaining me how things work. And we also often went to museums. So when we went to Paris, we, we went to the Cité des Sciences. And I really loved this with all these experimental setups and uh, explanatory, explanatory uh, expositions. So it is it's a lovely it's a lovely museum that actually i agree it's it's really really good and um from you did um a, a master's and um a phd and 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 from there you went to work at salsa this is this mm -hmm. industrial company i mentioned earlier in the, in the introduction as something called an application manager what what is an application manager so I think there are many different application managers uh, in the job sphere, but at Salter and as an application manager, I was responsible for a, a technology let, or, or a process. And in my case, so I was responsible for several processes, but one of them was the CO2 capture. And this means that uh, in the area I was responsible for, which was EMEA, so Europe, Russia, India, and Africa, all customers looking at these technologies were talking to me. So I had to uh, help them to find a good solution, a good process for their, their problem. And I also had to um, understand their needs. So if a customer had a specific problem which we could solve with a specific product i had to bring this into the uh, r d department and discuss with them how we could develop this so this was a very interesting and also diverse job so at the interface between r d and uh, the customers i can see how that leads perfectly to your to your current job. What, what did you learn then while you were at Salsa? What would you say were the, the sort of lessons that really stood in good stead for, for, for working uh, as head of R&D now? One thing I learned, so coming from academia after four and a half years of PhD, I was really technology driven. And I always thought, okay, the best technology will make it. And then if you get released, let's say to the real world, 
I, I had to realize that sometimes something is best from a technological point of view, but the customer is not interested. Maybe it's too expensive, maybe it's too fragile, maybe it's too complex. And I, I think I, I learned a, a great deal of pragmatism. So I really learned to find like a compromise between uh, technology and also needs of customers or the, the need of the product. It sounds to me like a logical progression then for, for you um, to want to go to Climeworks as head of R&D. Was it as simple as that? Yes. So I think my reasoning was a bit on the CO2 capture. So I did my PhD on CO2 capture as well. So by means of absorption. And after my PhD, I really wanted to have my ideas and my designs being built. So I really wanted to have something out there, which is big, which you can look at and, and see that all the thoughts you have put into it are actually being put in, in place. And then after uh, several years at, at Sulzer, I, I realized that I was like a really small, small part of a big, big construction or, or a big conglomerate. And that my ideas might be good, but might also not be implemented because there are too many or, or not too many, but really many people giving their opinion, making decisions. So going back to a smaller company like Climeworks, which is a startup where I have much more to say or where I, I can much more contribute to the shape and the way things are done was really appealing to me. And you mentioned Climeworks being a startup and, and this is a startup set up by ETH Zurich. Yes. It's lovely that you've come back full circle. Yeah. The, the two founders, Christoph and Jan, they were doing their PhD at the same time as myself at ETH. I think in the same building, but not on the same floor. So I, I knew them from sight and I was in contact, let's say in loose contact with them throughout the last years, also when I was working at Sulzer. And we had quite some discussions if I should join them or not. And after this four and a half, five years at Sulzer, I really felt that now is the time that uh, I, I would like to join. It's not just a young company then. It's also a relatively young team of engineers working on it, which sort of complements the fact that we're dealing with, in terms of operationally, a young technology. We are a, a very young team and the company... Now it, we had the 10th anniversary last year, so it's not that young anymore, but still. <laughs> and when it comes to the technology, I would say big part of it, it's not really a new technology, but the combination of all of it and some parts of it are really a, a new technology, as you mentioned. And now that we're, everybody's having to work in a different way, you know, here, here we are doing our interview remotely using you know zoom and how has your work changed during the the pandemic so my personal work i think i'm i was working or i was always sitting a lot in meetings and had a lot of chats with people so now i'm sitting in the home office and i still have a lot of meetings and a lot of chats with people just not face to face 
just not face to face. I think it's a bit more exhausting because you need to really make the effort to contact the people. You don't meet them in the corridor. So all this um, social interaction is not there. So this is, I would say for me, the, the biggest impact I have. The actual work which I need to do, I can do it perfectly from home. So in this respect, I don't have uh, that much changes. And what would your advice be to younger engineers or those thinking about studying engineering? Um, what, what would you say to them they should either consider or think about or in terms of personality or ideas or technology? I often advise people who are thinking about doing journalism, for instance, as in terms of is it really what you love doing? Because if you don't and you don't persist and take the knockbacks, you'll never, you will find it really difficult. You know, it could be anything. No, that, that's a, a good point. So I had an interview with 1% engineer some time ago and they asked me the similar question, a similar question. And what I said is that I think you should do something you're passionate about irrespectively what you are doing. Because if you're passionate about something, you are also good at it normally. Or you are really eager to spend time to get really good. And I think engineering, it's a hard, uh, it's a hard education. So you need to study a lot. At least we have to do this at ETH. And I guess most engineering schools are more or less the same. It's pretty time consuming. and. Um, you really need to have the passion for it. If you don't have it, then it, it might get a bit tough and also consuming. Yeah, I think you're, you're right about the, the hard work as well. I think uh, my son is studying engineering and, um, and even with no in-lab work at the moment because of pandemic restrictions, him and his fellow engineering students are still working really, really hard. <laughs> so it's a lot of hard work. So how do you relax then? So I love spending time with friends, family, and I really like to go outside. So here in Zurich, we have a, a wonderful lake. So I do sailing, sailing. So I love to be on the lake, in the lake, around the lake. So this is for me a, a perfect uh, way to recharge my batteries and to, to get my mind free of all the thoughts I have during the week. That sounds absolutely perfect. And I also like the fact that as a technology that you're working on, which is, you know, helping our climate and uh, clearing the air, it's the one thing you do associate with Switzerland as well, is beautiful, clean air. Natalie Casas, thank you very much for joining me on the Create the Future podcast. Thank you.